Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. On today's episode, Andrew and I are joined by computer science professor Adam Dupay to talk about cybersecurity in the technologies that surround us today and into the future. Before we start, I should mention that this is our very first episode, so please let us know what you liked and what we could do better. You can find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can tweet at us at the handle FutureThinkPod. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and please also share our podcast with your friends. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, you, you know each other a very little bit, but um, you haven't met each other before today. So just if, let's do that. Okay. After yeah. Sure. All right. So I'm Adam Dupay. I... Have I'm a like to say I'm a triple gaucho, so I got three degrees from UC Santa Barbara. I did their <laughs> four plus one there, so undergrad and a master's, and then I graduated and was like, I'm so happy to be out of academia. <laughs> I'm gonna go work and make loads of money. So I got a job at Microsoft. I was going to Microsoft, and while I was there, I was working on a research project I had started for my master's project. And there I kind of realized like, oh, I really want to start doing something new. And so I emailed my advisor and said I wanted to come back for a PhD. So I came back. Did a PhD there in, uh, my PhD was on web security, so right. my background is on automated ways to find and exploit vulnerabilities in web applications. Okay, right. Either just by interacting with them or by analyzing the source code to figure out exactly what they do and exactly how we can take them. Right, down. okay, so, okay. Yeah, I've been here two years now and um, loving it. Right, and so what are you doing here at ASU? And so here I co-direct the Cephcom lab, which is security engineering for future computing right. uh, with Dr. Gail June on. And so we basically are trying to tackle security problems wherever they exist. So we've looked all the way from Chromebook security and Chromebook forensics to mm -hmm. mobile applications. We have 1.5 million and growing Android apps from the marketplace that we're trying to analyze them for security right, vulnerabilities. Okay. Uh, to doing web stuff, to all the way down at the low level of hardware, of how can we use new security primitives in hardware, really to keep people safe. That's right, really okay. what we right, want to do. Right, right, Fascinating stuff. So you have a lot to so, say about medical devices and self-driving cars. Right, so. right. Where, whereas I just sort of think these big yeah, thoughts without really simple, knowing anything. A simple <laughs> physicist, Andrew. A simple, well, I'm not even a simple physicist anymore. Sorry, and I... I did physics for many years. Mm. That's where my PhD is, and I used to work in the lab for I don't know a decade or so. Cool, doing um, real science. Do, I feel do, like I just doing do real science, and I, I actually I really miss it as well. Um, but these days, I um, do a lot of stuff around emerging technologies mm. and, and risk, and, and think cool. fairly broadly about how you can begin to, to approach emerging sort of risks that we've never really had to deal with before, and even how you conceptualize those and how you work out how you're going to navigate a pathway through. So I sort of dabble all the way across. From 
from things like nanotechnology and synthetic biology all the way mm-hmm. through to autonomous vehicles, additive manufacturing. Um, even I'm, So I'm intrigued with things even like blockchain, although mm-hmm. what fascinates me about blockchain is everybody's really enthusiastic about it, but it's very hard to find anybody who understands anything about what it is or what it can do. And so all of these things, I'm really interested in where the opportunities are for these emerging technologies, where the vulnerabilities and risks are, and how you mm-hmm. actually get through that uh, a place which is beneficial. Cool. So when you talk about risk, are you talking about like high level risk, low level risk? Like who's who's risk, I guess? So we actually completely reconceptualize risk. So I, I should have said what I do here is I direct the risk innovation lab. And one of the motivations behind that is um, the realization that a lot of the ways we approach risk, whether it's human health risk or whether it's security risk or um, other sorts of risk, they're actually rather outmoded. There's a huge lack of creativity there. We sort of we think we know what we're doing. Um, and as we think about risk, anything which is difficult, we basically take off the table and say we're not going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so our pro- approach with risk innovation is seeing how we can bring that, that spirit of creativity and innovation that you see in tech innovation to our thinking about risk. So when I actually think about risk and define it, um, I think about it as a, a threat to value. Mm. Um, so um, that value is going to depend on whose value it is, whether it's an individual's, whether it's a community's, whether it's a whole society's. Mm-hmm. Um, then the nature of the the value is going to change as well. And then that determines what sort of threat you're talking about. So it could be about security. Mm-hmm. And large. Um, obviously, security is something that you really don't want to be threatened, and if it is threatened, you need to deal with it. But yes. it all could come down to issues such as personal privacy, mm-hmm. um, personal quality of life, um, personal self-assuredness in terms of whether somebody actually feels like they're in control of, of their own destiny. So it gives us a platform to think very, very creatively about what risk is and then begin to pass out how we address that. Cool. So I think that's a pretty good segue then to talk about cars, right? Mm-hmm. And risk and, and self-driving cars right. and um, and security in self-driving cars. There was that hack, was it last summer? Yes, which, which the, hack? This sort I of think demonstrated hack. And I, was, ah, it, yes, was it the, the slate? Uh, it was like a slate uh, or a, some reporter. Mm, uh, yeah, Wired, yeah. I think it was Wired. Wired. Right, right, it. right. Yeah. But yeah. wasn't there a more recent hack? Yes, yes. there was the yeah. Teslas um, by other researchers, so they showed they could completely remote control the Tesla. But right. even going back to the the Jeep hack, I mean, they showed that remotely, all they needed was a Sprint cell phone, mm-hmm. and they could connect remotely to this car over the Sprint mm-hmm. network. And from there, they found vulnerabilities in the system to be able to completely control all the functionalities of the car. To right. To stop, mm-hmm. start, push on the gas, do whatever they want to do. Which is really quite frightening. So something that really intrigues me about this mm-hmm. is you look at the evolution of software systems. And I, I remember going back to, to my days as a, as a youth when you had sort of MS-DOS and other systems coming out. Um, and the, the running joke was if we build buildings like we build software architecture, everything will fall down. Mm-hmm. So we went through this learning curve of basically people making really shoddy stuff and then learning over time mm-hmm. how they sort of factor out the, the shoddiness and actually create robust systems within software platforms. Are we now in a situation where because hardware and software are becoming so integrated we're making the same mistakes with hardware or are we actually learning from our mistakes with with software and actually building in or building out vulnerabilities in hardware? I think it yeah it's very tricky. I think part of the thing is there's the saying that software is eating the world and what I always tell my students is that I'm always going to have a job because humans fundamentally write software. 
and humans are flawed. We are not perfect. Right. And unfortunately, we can't write a program that proves that a program, another program is perfect. Right. So we fundamentally can't do that. We can't write a program that finds all security vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have flawed, vulnerable software. Even when you think about it, like you said, MS-DOS, right? Microsoft went through this huge learning phase mm -hmm. of when they said, oh man, like in the early 2000s, there was the Slammer, Code Red, Melissa virus. They took a really hard look at their culture and revamped their security culture right. to include with the software development lifecycle. And it's gotten so much better, but still. It, you've got those vulnerabilities. You yeah. still have vulnerabilities in brand new Windows 10 operating right, systems. Right, 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 right. But how much of, of that new culture has spilled over to these these tech companies, hardware companies that are now beginning to sort of integrate with the software? I think the, the key problem is it all depends on who are the people that right. are doing it. And right. there are varying levels. At the end of the day, you're still going to have vulnerabilities in software yep. and the key scary problem, I mean there's a couple scary problems with now you've tied it to hardware. Yeah. One of the key things is how do you update that hardware? Yes. Right? So as, and from a business perspective, you got to think, well, okay, yes, of course I want to update my client's devices, and in this case the device is the car, mm -hmm. with new software that I've developed, but what if I break their car, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. What right. if you, you just... <laughs> Got up in the morning, went into your car, hit the button, or turned the key, and it didn't work because the software updated overnight. Well, well yeah. so so even sort of one step below that, mm -hmm. you get into your car and you switch on, it says sort of software updating, wait two hours. <laughs> right. Yes. yes, that would be insane. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> we did have a software update. We, there, There's a Tesla in mm -hmm. my household. Mm. I would not say that I'm allowed to drive it, um, but there is one. And we did have a situation where there was a software update that caused this whining sound to emit from the car. Right. And we were kind of stuck. And thank goodness, you know, we were in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. like, what do we do right, right now? Like right. How, right. like, reset? I don't even know how this works. It was so foreign to us. This notion mm -hmm. of like, hey, my car can update overnight. That's pretty cool until it starts whining at you and in it, the middle of the it, afternoon. And it becomes really serious. And I wonder whether this is part of this culture change as well. Because mm -hmm. again, I, I remember when sort of electronic devices, they weren't essential. Right. Um, mm -hmm. they, they were like an add-on to life. So mm -hmm. if something went wrong, it was an inconvenience, but yes. you lived with it. But now we're getting to this point where the hardware around us is all interconnected. It is essential. Mm -hmm. And you yes. really can't afford for things just not to work because somebody didn't write the code right. Right, and the, the flip side of that though is what happens in like industrial control systems, right? So they usually have one machine that is talking to this big, really expensive industrial control system that's in charge of this, you know, business operations. And that machine is usually a Windows XP machine that has not been patched or updated. It's usually not connected to the internet at large, otherwise that would be really right. bad. But at the end of the day, you have this machine that the business has to decide the risk. Yes. Do I update this operating system to fix all the known vulnerabilities mm -hmm. when that could impact my business and take down this huge system? That's so, right, yes. But what happens is now we've seen worms and viruses like Stuxnet, which are able to cross this air gap. So they right. transmit on USB keys. Mm -hmm. And when you plug into this, you pass USB right. keys, yes. now you're inside there and inside this system. And yes. so yes. you have these really, you have risk from both ways. Either you risk updating too frequently to mm -hmm. causing your car to whine, mm -hmm. or you don't update enough and you're leaving your customers vulnerable. Right, yes, right. and that gets us back to the hacking yes. risk, yes. Yeah. yeah. So. 
to you know turn away from cars to pacemakers this whole make it this even was, scarier yeah <laughs> so a little bit scarier right um and this uh so the company was uh so medsec this cybersecurity startup mm -hmm. um basically decided as a business strategy, right, to demonstrate that there's a vulnerability in St. Jude pacemakers. Mm -hmm. Conveniently, St. Jude is in the midst of a $25 billion cash deal to be bought by Abbott Laboratories, which makes it the <laughs> largest medical device company. So the timing of this is certainly, you know, not altruistic, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is not being done for the public's good, <laughs> no question about it. And then they approached um, this capital firm called appropriately Muddy Waters um, and said, hey, we found this cyber, you know, risk mm -hmm. with St. Jude and it enabled them to basically short sell St. Jude's stock, which by the way is totally legal. Um, so what should people think about this? Like, what should St. Jude think about this, you know? It's a complicated question. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to think of it at multiple layers. The first one is always because I have a technology background. Like, I like to think about them. Like, your responsibility as a soft, you know, software device maker is to keep your users safe, right? right? So no matter how this information gets to you, once you have knowledge that there is this vulnerability that exists, to me, I feel like you have the obligation to uh, act on that and mm -hmm. to improve your customer's safety. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So actually, it, it, it strikes me, I, coming from Impada, a public health background, mm -hmm. Um, that say you're a device manufacturer, um, not looking at the, the tech sector, mm -hmm. um, but if you're an established company there, you have a duty of care, and whether it's a legal requirement or just an ethical requirement, you understand your obligation to the, the patient at the end of the day. Right. I wonder whether part of the challenge is you're now having companies coming into this sector that don't have that history of understanding what duty of care means. That's right. Um, so even if they think that they're behaving responsibly from a, a fiduciary responsibility and duty perspective, they're not actually thinking about the, the consequences to the patient. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, one of the downstream effects that we see from stuff like this is that, you know, I practice in this medical field and people come in and say, oh, I have a St. Jude pacemaker, you know, um, is a hacker going to get me? <laughs> right. Are they going to turn off them? my pacemaker? <laughs> right. And, you know, I don't know if you remember in the, I think it was the second season of Homeland on Showtime. <laughs> so the storyline went that the vice president of the United States had a pacemaker and the terrorists basically hacked the pacemaker system and caused him to have a life-threatening arrhythmia and right. that was that um yeah i'm 99 sure that was homeland right um yeah it was definitely homeland but it was a medtronic pacemaker in homeland now right. four people knew that one of them was me you know who like watching <laughs> homeland like oh i know that box um but people then started coming in now this was fiction yeah but people would come in and say oh am i safe is a terrorist gonna target me with my pacemaker so i so i presume this is plausible if you've got any sort of medical device which is internet connected oh, it's yeah. plausible. even if even i've seen some talks where even a glucose pump for right. early, sorry an insulin pump yes yes that talks to your smartphone doesn't mm -hmm. have not talking to the internet your smartphone mm -hmm. talks to the internet 
they have found vulnerabilities in these yeah. devices that somebody around you could connect to that device and cause so, it to start to so, so part part of the challenge here is sort of passing out the risk. You've mm -hmm. got multiple vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. You've got um, the, the chances of unintended harm. Mm -hmm. So you've got something where the, the software is not great, it's got a bug in it, something yep. goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got a vulnerability where maybe some external factor can influence that mm -hmm. unintentionally, mm -hmm. or you've got malicious intent. Um, the malicious intent is, is an interesting one because I, I get the impression if you look at that, so you look at it from a risk perspective, there's got to be a compelling reason why somebody would interfere with it. Um, there's got to be some value gain um, for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect in many of these cases, even where there are vulnerabilities, it's hard to justify I, why somebody would do that unless they're just feeling particularly mean one well, day. Well, terror is a thing. That right, would definitely right. Be yeah. the first one. Um, yeah, that's and that's actually a lot of what we try to think about is why, like what's the impact of this vulnerability, right? right. And a lot right. of the crime and cybercrime we're seeing now is financially motivated. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, so we have ransomware, which mm -hmm. gets on your computer, right, encrypts right. all your files and says, send bitcoins to this address to get your files back, otherwise mm -hmm. they're all gone. Yeah. Right, and that's clear financial incentive. I I can't at the moment think of. Uh, so you you say that actually this is now scaring me because you have enough internet connected medical <laughs> devices on the market. Why not oh, use sure. exactly the same strategy? Well, there you get an been, email. Yeah. There have been a couple of cases, right, right. with hospitals in I want to say California that uh, had exactly that. It was a ransomware situation mm -hmm. and basically mm -hmm. locked an entire hospital yes. system out from their yes. electronic medical record. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And. I mean, those Bitcoin ATMs are in Brooklyn. I mean, they're not in, yeah. you know, industrial centers. Yeah, I've California. heard of companies <laughs> stockpiling Bitcoins just in case. Yeah. It's really, easier really. for them to just yeah. pay it. But, but even you think of the individual. Say you're yeah. somebody with an internet-connected pacemaker. Mm -hmm. You get an email one day saying, we can hack your pacemaker. Mm -hmm. Please send XYZ to this address. Otherwise, mm -hmm. dot, yeah. dot, dot. So they already yeah. do this to... Um, Companies, so they'll email, right. mm -hmm. they'll DDoS, they'll get a huge botnet of interconnected mm -hmm. machines, send a bunch of traffic to your company's website to shut it down, and then send you an email like, "Oh, your website's down. That sucks. Send us some bitcoins if you want it to go back on." Right, mm -hmm. right. And as a business owner, you're losing money for it being down, right? And so you have an incentive sure, to actually to pay. Actually pay. Yeah. yeah. So how do you deal with this? So this is very clearly a, a very serious vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. And you can certainly imagine some people beginning to play around with people's lives mm -hmm. as yep. they're playing around with businesses yep. at the moment. How do you close that loop? You need, uh, A, I mean, to me, it's like, don't connect it to the internet. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't want it. Like, I'm sorry. I don't yeah. know. I, I become yeah. more and more of a Luddite the more I learn about all these systems. Right. So it's like, you know, maybe that like, is. Like, like, maybe I don't want my pacemaker to talk to the internet. But then you think about the other case of, well, now my doctor can see up-to-the-date things of what's going on with me and my absolutely. health. So then you, there's, you've got that yeah. trade-off, yeah. Yeah, there's clear use cases. Very, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I'd hate to, like, get in the way of... Yeah. progress and improving society because we're scared about the possible consequences, but I understand we need to address that, right? Right, well, yes. and with the, the cars, right, self-driving cars, there's the real possibility that that could reduce traffic fatalities mm -hmm. tremendously, oh, right? In, and yes. improve things like um, efficiency mm -hmm. because yeah. we won't have traffic jams in yes. the same way. And by people not having to drive around and look for parking, not that we ever do in you know this neck of the woods in Phoenix, but in places like New York, LA, yeah. San yeah. Francisco, that we are talking about a whole lot of decreases in wasted time and also in emissions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
so ah, uh, how so, do we deal with those? Right. I, so certainly with the the cars, the the case for really accelerating the development of autonomous vehicles is is compelling, even from a public health perspective. As you said, there are what thirty odd thousand um, deaths through through road crashes in the states oh, yeah. a year alone. Most of those associated with human behaviour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you cut out the humans, yes. you can make a massive impact mm-hmm. on on deaths. Um, so there is that compelling reason, and also, as you said, just in terms of, of pollution as well, you can do things that people really aren't even exploring mm-hmm. at the moment in terms of interconnected vehicle systems. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very hard to argue against this technology. The challenge is, I, as we've said, how do you sort of develop it um, as safely as possible? I suspect that the biggest challenge is in the transition period. So you yes. go sort of fast forward 20 years, say, yes. all cars uh, are self-driving. It's in the interest of big business and big government to ensure those systems are robust and safe. It's in the transition period where nobody is fully enough invested that they're going to make sure that those loopholes are closed. And it's a lot easier for a computer system to reason about what other computer systems are going to do. They can even communicate with each other, right? right? You're talking about, but now when you have, that's why I feel bad for the autonomous systems now, is they have to deal with humans. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds horrible. It's hard enough for us dealing with other humans. We we are the fly in the oil. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I think those two situations are incredibly related, right? Because imagine mm-hmm. you're driving, you're not driving, your car is driving you down the road in your awesome Tesla, you've kicked back, and then you have a pop-up that pops up on your big, nice dashboard on the Tesla and says, hmm, your brakes are going to shut off in five seconds unless you pay this, send this money to this <laughs> right, Bitcoin address, right, right? right? And then you do it, and then you see, oh my gosh, your brakes are off, the car starts maybe veering yes. in the lane. Who would not pay that? Like, well, well, well right. that's exactly it. Right. Yes, yeah. Or even worse case. So um, something I've been thinking about is one of the benefits of autonomous vehicles is you can transport people who can't drive. Mm-hmm. So the elderly, right. obviously, but also young kids. So imagine a situation <laughs> yeah. where you send the car off to get your kids from school, and you get this message saying, um, "By the way, if you want to see your kids again, oh, man. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's." I, there are so many ways you can imagine yeah. vulnerabilities. So then the challenge is, how do you close those loopholes? Like partially, I suspect, it's going to be a, a cultural thing. Yes. Where, and if you think about culture the, these days, there are lots of things that people can do that they mm-hmm. don't do because it's just socially utterly unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and at some point, I suspect, we're going to see things emerge within society that are considered to be totally unacceptable. But still, you're going to have those people that push the boundaries. Especially right. with financial incentives. That's exactly yeah. it. So then, sort of, not only how do we do this, but whose responsibility is it to, to think about both how you approach this challenge and where you put the resources? And there's a third aspect of that is, and that is how do you actually engage the users as well? So at the moment, yes. we're talking about a situation where the users are passive. They're just sort of they're yep. having technology thrust at them. They're either buying into it or not. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be somebody else's problem, whether it's safe or not. But how do you make them part of the equation? And make them care about it, right? right. And to yes. demand yes. that they want safe things that are not, you know, taking advantage of them. Well, that's right. Yes. And I think yes. part, uh, you brought up a really good point about culture earlier, right? And you have new people from the tech industry moving into these new areas, yes, right? Yeah. And they bring this culture. The culture of Facebook is move fast and break things. Right. Right? They <laughs> want to push out as much. Their their whole ethos is if you're not moving and coding fast enough where something's breaking, then you're not being productive enough and you're not pushing the bounds. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. when you think about taking that mindset into Just, just remind me not to buy the, the Facebook pacemaker. Yeah. <laughs> 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 get in a Facebook car, right? I don't know. Right. Oh, man. 
just, <laughs> it's scary. So yeah, it does. It requires a different mindset, and it's funny because it requires yes. more of the traditional engineering. Make something that actually works. Take the time to get it right. Yeah, I mean, there are. The problem is there are procedures in place, like NASA is able to do amazing things with software, mm-hmm. and it takes them a lot of money to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. So I, I wonder, I, this is by no means a solution, but I wonder whether part of moving forward is helping people realize the need for culture change, mm-hmm. both from a business perspective as well as a broader success perspective, and providing the, the training, the education, um, and development opportunities to do that. So you can imagine a, a world in which, say, Facebook does want to go into medical devices, mm-hmm. and they understand that their, their software culture or their social media culture actually is going to end up being a liability. Maybe not initially, but certainly 10 years yes. down the road. So they understand the need to change. Um, they will then need people to help them change that culture so they still stay on the cutting edge where they do it in a different way. So that to me is an opportunity uh, for organizations to see how they can actually train people to fit that new model. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, what's the incentive for organizations to do that? That's going to cost organizations a lot of time and money. So I I would actually say a couple of things. First of all, there's the financial Mm -hmm. um, incentive. Um, so certain, I, it doesn't work for a small startup, but if you're looking for a company that wants to be around and growing in five, ten years, mm-hmm. um, they're usually pretty astute to realize that if they do stupid things that maybe give them short-term gain but long-term losses, it's not a, a great strategy for their, their shareholders. And so you've got that incentive, but you've also got another incentive that doesn't work for everybody, but it works for some companies, and that is the desire to do the right thing, mm-hmm. which I, I think we discount. Um, so there's certainly this, this culture around well, responsibility around fiduciary responsibility of, of making money. Mm-hmm. But there are more and more companies these days that see other value propositions as important, mm-hmm. all the way from corporate social responsibility to sustainability, mm-hmm. to having a strong code of ethics mm-hmm. where they look at creating value other than financial value. Mm-hmm. So that I think you can tap into. One of the challenges, a lot of these companies, they want to do the right thing, they don't know how to do it and they don't know how to justify it and they don't know how to quantify it. Mm-hmm. But if there are better ways of supporting them within those aims so that the, the metrics of success are not just how much money they made, mm-hmm. um, that helps us sort of move forward in this way. Okay. So we're sitting here in the proverbial ivory tower. So what's our role in moving this forward? Well, oh, I think to pontificate on it and do absolutely. I'm really biased. It's all about research, right? right? I mean, that's really that's really why. I mean, all of this drives why, as a researcher, why I do what I do, right? Mm-hmm. Is I'm trying to build the tools, techniques, algorithms to help these people develop software that doesn't have vulnerabilities, right? Yeah. And so the more I can do, that's really where my background is. Is I'm I like to think of it like if we can prevent them, help the developer to find bugs and vulnerabilities before they ever ship this stuff, then that can help prevent kind of vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. So I think there's, there's got to be that that connection. Um, mm-hmm. So I think one of the advantages of sitting here in the ivory tower mm-hmm. um, in academia is we have tremendous freedom to explore new ideas and, and develop new ways of thinking about challenges and finding solutions mm-hmm. and move forwards. The danger is just using that as an intellectual exercise and then moving on to the next one without yes. making it um, worthwhile to other people. You mean we have to talk to other people? Yeah, so yeah. And, and so actually, I so to me, this is a responsibility. Yeah. And you, you talk about sort of the, the, the ethics of an organization. Mm-hmm. I would actually say that the 
academia and academics are ethically responsible, not only for coming up with new ideas, but making sure that they are of value and of worth to other mm -hmm. people that are going to apply them. So that means both engaging with different communities um, and engaging with them on equal. So we in entering partnerships, sort of soft partnerships or hard partnerships, so there's that flow, two-way flow of information. But then working with these these other groups to, to build stronger, more resilient, more secure systems. And we can do that both with the transfer of knowledge, but also with training and education as well. Mm -hmm. So we actually give people the tools and the ways of thinking that they need. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's what, something I'd love to do is to make a security class required for all computer science right. majors, right? right? Is because that's now especially, right? You don't, it doesn't matter what field you're gonna go in when you start developing software in your career, it has security impacts, right? Yeah. Right. And it's gonna impact somebody. And so, you know, you can get through your CS education without taking any security classes. Yes. And yeah. to me, it's becoming as core mm -hmm. as networking, as mm -hmm. compilers, as these really low level stuff. To me, it's really becoming core because it doesn't matter where you go, security is going to be important. And if you don't know what you don't know, that's the huge problem. You don't realize, you're not even thinking about security or anything like that or this vulnerable mindset. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree entirely. It's it's almost sort of taking the idea of business ethics and putting meat on it. Um, sort of saying, rather than just sort of thinking this is a nice thing to do or not do, it actually gives them very strong tools for mm -hmm. doing stuff which is going to protect them, other people, themselves, their business. And I would sort of bring in sort of some of our innovative risk thinking there mm -hmm. as well. So that security awesome. is critically important, but also if you can be innovative and imaginative in terms of how you think about vulnerabilities and threats, mm -hmm. you can then find very effective new solutions to addressing them. All right, so creative risk thinking, required security thinking, mm -hmm. bang, I think we got it. That sounds good. <laughs> All right, let's do Somebody that. Somebody needs to put us in charge and then we'll be good, right? Super, that's exactly <laughs> it, put us in charge. Yeah. All right, thanks guys. Thank you, great, yeah. thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.